I'm thankful for the opportunity to preach here tonight. It's always a privilege. And as we get into the sermon here in just a few moments, just, just because something is simple, I work in construction, I work as a carpenter, and just because that particular task is simple does not mean that it's easy. It's a challenge tonight. It's something I pray that would be familiar, also simple and understandable, but at least for me in my experience, it's something that's incredibly difficult to actually do. Before we get into the sermon, by way of introduction, I'd like to talk about a little bit of research done by a man named James Gibson. Back in the 1970s, he coined this term, affordances, affordances. I don't know if many of you have heard that before, but that term it refers to is the technical definition, refers to the opportunities for action provided by a particular object or environment. Okay, that's, that's wonderful. But in other words, when we look at objects in our environment, we're asking the question, what does this object offer or afford me? So it was in the development of robotic programming and of programming these robotic machines, developing the computer logic for those things that kind of created this whole um, scientific field of perceptual vision and this particular field of, of study of affordances. So re- researchers realized they were trying to create these, um, the programming for these robotic machines that computers didn't, you couldn't like create a representation of something. And by learning how to, how to create the computers, they learned more about how we think ourselves. So when we think about things, we don't create a representation of, for example, this chair in our heads. And then because we now look at it and we create this representation in our head and we're like, oh, that's a chair, we could sit on that. We're like, oh, let's sit on the chair. Rather, think about it this way. What the whole idea of affordances is all about is that when I have a goal, something I'm trying to do, I enter into this room, and my goal right now is to get from this side of the auditorium to that side of the auditorium, and I'm walking around and I see these stairs. Because I'm just trying to get over there, these stairs are an obstacle to me. They're something that I could trip on and fall. So I'm not seeing them as anything useful, merely as an obstacle. However, if my purposes have changed, and I'm trying to get from down here to up there, all of a sudden these stairs are now stairs to me because I can walk up them. And once, but once again, now that I'm up here, I'm trying to stay up here. My purposes, my goals have changed. These are no longer stairs. These are stairs I can trip over. This is an obstacle once again. And, and that, that, that whole thought process there, that, that way of explaining that, is the term affordances. And so the idea of affordances is just simply this. Based on my goals, the affordances in my environment offer either an obstacle or a tool for my progress. It's like, okay, they figure that out, and because they figure that out, they're able to do a lot with a lot of the robotic machines that they're developing, all those kinds of things, things like Roombas and all the way to, you know, rovers on Mars. And you're like, well, that's fine and well when it comes to chairs and stairs and navigating terrain. I mean, of course, unless you break your head on the stairs, that, then it's not very fine and well. But how does this How does this apply, this type of thinking? How does it fit within the kingdom of God? Well, let's turn to Matthew in chapter 5, our text for today. And even though, as I've mentioned before, our text is extremely familiar, we need to understand the context. This is the Sermon on the Mount. I believe Pastor Andrews preached this before, and I'm sure you've read it yourself. But before we get into it, we need to just tag into a little bit of context about that. So Matthew in chapter 5. So, the people that came to the mountain, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus up in a mountain, the people who came there to hear Jesus preach, they were people who had wanted to follow Jesus. And so all these people, he had done miracles, his fame had spread through abroad. People were like, only kind of person who could do these kinds of miracles would be the Messiah, whatever that is. And so the people who came up into the mountain were people who were there to follow Jesus, and he Begin to speak to them. Now, we're going to jump past when he began to speak to them. He uttered those famous words in the beginning of chapter 5. Seeing the multitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. We're going to jump past that and we're going to begin our reading in verse 
20. And he says, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. In verse 17 through 20, that little bit of introductory uh, transitionary material, rather, Jesus tells them what he's saying in his sermon. He says, I'm not come to destroy the law, but I've come to fulfill the law. And because this law, it's not going anywhere. Heaven and earth can pass away, but the law is not going anywhere. Anyone who teaches around the law, who tries to explain it away, that person will be held accountable. And then Jesus will begin to make the whole point of his sermon. So everything that follows after this, he's had those beatitudes that become before. He's kind of explaining what it means to be a blessed disciple. And he says, if you're going to be the blessed disciple, then your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. He's saying, if you're going to be the blessed person, you have to have that greater righteousness. Now, just to give us a little bit more context as we're speaking of, the political and cultural moment of the first century in Jerusalem at that time, there were all kinds of groups. And you had zealots and Herodians and publicans and Hellenizers and, all, and the Sadducees. And these different groups, just like we have today, they were pushing their different progressive aims. And some of them were just pushing merely political aims. And the zealots, for example, they were just about creating a Jewish state. They were going to overthrow Rome and they would get these little knives and they'd go out there and just stab everybody. So you have those same categories of people, the people who just want to do away with all the law, the people who are just ready to kill everybody, the people who are trying to make compromises, the progressives, the Pharisees, you got to think of them, they were like the most conservative people of the book. They were the ones that were saying, hey, look at the law. The law says this. This is what the law says. This is what we're going to do. They were the ones who would have you thrown out of the synagogue because you were kindling a fire on the Sabbath. They couldn't execute you because Rome was in charge, but they would have you beaten publicly and humiliated because you were not following the law. They were trying to bring back that purity. And Jesus is saying, the most pure and intense crazy people that is way too much for you, except you exceed that, you shall not even get near the kingdom of God. And he says, if you're going to do that, it requires a greater righteousness. He says, okay, you want to know what this greater righteousness looks like? Greater than you can even imagine. He says, I'm going to give you five examples. These are five examples as what we're going to go through tonight. We want to look at kind of what connects these five examples. We're going to go through as quickly as we can, so we're going to have to work together on this. Hope I don't preach too fast. Um, I tend to do that, but we're going to try to work together. These five examples says, here's what you've heard. Because remember, the people were not rolling out these 100-pound scrolls every morning to read a section of the Torah, of the law of God. Rather, they were coming to the synagogue to hear the Pharisees read them, and then the scribes and the Pharisees would teach them about it. He's saying, here's what you've been taught, and here's the greater righteous, rather, of what I want you to teach. In each of the cases, the Pharisees teaching the law that they had heard well, limited their responsibility to God, and it even nullified the point. So let's, uh, beginning in verse 3, he says, 21 rather, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. He says, But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if I bring... If thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way first, be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. So Jesus begins by quoting what they have heard. Thou shalt not kill, and whoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. And so the law of Moses, it required that if a person killed another person, then that perpetrator, that um, alleged murderer, would be brought before the council of the priest. And similar to our current law codes, there's a varying degree of punishments based on the crime that was committed. But Jesus says, he's saying, rather than if you kill someone, in some cases, homicide is justifiable. So 
in the, in the way that the Pharisees were teaching the law of Moses is they were saying, if you kill someone, you better have a good explanation or you're going to be in trouble. And Jesus is saying, rather than that, rather than that, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause, he stands in the same danger that the commend, condemned murderer stands under. So hold on a second. The guy who is angry with his brother, he stands under the same judgment as the guy who actually murdered someone. This is not appropriate thinking. This is not showing a proper d- difference between those two actions. And further, he says, whoever calls his brother Raka, so basically, ancient insult, equivalent to you, empty-headed. And, you know, if you've ever had brothers, they're empty-headed. It's just the way they are. You've got to tell the truth sometimes. But he says, anyone who says that, you're in danger of the council. Whoever calls their brother a fool is in danger of hellfire. And sometimes people explain this in terms of these three examples. They show a progression of a severity, right? So it's getting worse and worse. But rather, they're all connected. In the upside-down kingdom of Jesus, the hatred in your heart that is angry with your brother without a cause is the same hatred that calls down insults and cursing. And it's the same hatred in your heart that murders your brother. And all three sins are not just punishable by the judgment of man, but in Jesus' kingdom, all three of those are sins against your brother, and they're punishable by the eternal judgment of God. The Torah, as taught by the Pharisees, well, it limits the murder of your brother. But Jesus teaches us to reconcile with our brother the legalistic righteousness required, that you just stayed clear of murdering your brother without a good explanation. But Jesus calls his disciples to place reconciliation with your brother equal with your worship with God. Because he's talking about there, if you're at the altar and you're about to give your gift, this is like not just every Sunday because they would travel up to Jerusalem only at high feast days. So you're talking about like, Christmas and Thanksgiving combined, and you're there and you remembered that your brother back in Bethlehem, shall we say, has got a problem with you. He says, leave your gift to the altar, stop what you're doing, go home and make it right with your brother. And, and, and to, to, to really tap into what he's saying here, reconciliation, it's a higher bar than just murdering your brother or even hating your brother. It's not saying just don't hate your brother, not just make sure that you don't murder your brother. He's saying if your brother has a problem with you, if you're going to be a disciple of mine, a follower of Jesus Christ, then if someone has a problem with you, it is now your responsibility. The weight is on you to go fix that and make sure that it's reconciled. That's pretty strong. That's pretty hard. That's an increased weight of responsibility. Jesus says, okay, you think that's hard? Jesus continues. In verse 27, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. In the Torah, they would have heard. The commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. The act of sexual infidelity in marriage. But Jesus once again requires a higher standard. A standard of no lust. In the kingdom of Jesus, the breaking, the bonds of marriage, it's the same heart that looks at a woman to lust. He says, the man that looks at a woman with inordinate sexual desire has the same heart of the adulterer. And Jesus says, you've already committed that sin in your heart. And because that sin is so egregious that that heart is the same in the eyes of Jesus, if you've got, he's saying, cut your eye out, pluck it out, cut your arms off. This is how serious Jesus is getting about this. And, and remember, it's, it's hyperbole, it's exaggeration. He's not saying literally blind yourself if you're lusting after pornography, but he's saying the sin in the heart is the same. And it's not just the actions, he's concerned about the hearts of his disciples. As many would say in our day, it's just looking. I'm not doing anything. But he's saying, Jesus is trying to say that the heart that wants to hate his brother is the same as the heart of a murderer. And the person who looks with lust, that's the same sinful, disgusting heart that actually commits adultery. Just, he says, to root it out, cut it off, pluck out any part of you that would lust because this sin will cast you into hell just as murdering your brother. 
Well, he continues, the Pharisees required that a man would avoid adultery, but adultery happens. Things happen in marriage. So they had a way of classifying their way out of technical adultery, even to a point where in the Jewish schools they had the Hallel school, it was called. It was taught all the way around the purpose that a man could divorce his wife for, as they, they called it, any good cause, which any good cause is, is quite broad. You might even say that's no-fault divorce, as we have nowadays. But Jesus is saying, as we continue, look at verse 31. It has been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. So as continuing in this idea of these examples, he says, if you hate, you're the same as a murderer. If you lust, you're the same as an adulterer. And you can classify your way out of adultery. But if you put your wife away, if there is a break, except for, in, for, for infidelity, it doesn't matter. You've committed adultery. It's the same thing. You can't, you know, just only have one wife at a time and so now you're good. No, he's saying you can't classify your way. There's this greater righteousness to which I'm calling. And Jesus continues from this controversial teaching on marriage to even more difficult teaching. He says, Ye have heard that thou shalt not forswear, but I say, speak the truth. Look at verse 33. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but thou shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. So he's referencing that Old Testament commandment of not to bear false witness, but he's also referencing Numbers 30 and chapter, chapter 30 and verse 2, 2 through 16 concerning the fulfillment of vows. So when he says the idea of swearing, it's not just the idea of, okay, you know, cursing and saying bad words that have got to be bleeped out. What Jesus is talking about is people would make an oath. So, you know, you put your hand on the Bible, I swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. The same was true in, in the Old Testament time. They didn't have written contracts. You would make a, a, a swearing, an oath, that you are promising to do this. But they had just like that. They had a way of classifying their way out of it. So if you, if you swore by you know, the temple, then you're crossing your fingers. Because it really, it only counted if you swore by the gold in the temple. So you could swear by the temple itself and you could say, this, this donkey I'm trying to sell you, he's literally totally not blind and he's definitely only five years instead of 20. But I'm only swearing by the temple, so I'm all good. And he says, if you add anything to your words, you're just continuing in evil. You're just add, anything that's added to it is going to, to cause evil, rather, is what I'm trying to say. He says, Speak the truth. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Fulfill your vows. Do what's right and do what you say you're going to do. Always speak the truth is what he's saying. He continues in verse 38. Ye have heard that it's been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. I think for me this is where it gets... Okay, Jesus, I understand you want to say, you want to set the bar high, you want to show us there's a greater righteousness, but, but maybe, let's just be honest, maybe this is a little bit too far. Okay, don't kill anyone, don't commit adultery, don't look lustfully, but are you limiting what I can do? He says, resist, not evil. Let's dig in this for a second. So the Old Testament law, it says, eye for an eye. And many today, they say, this is proof that God is unjust. An eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind, but... Let's understand the cultural context in which the Mosaic law was given. 
And in that time, we're talking about like nomadic blood feuds between various tribes. So this is the way that works, that tribal culture. One person steals my cow, which I've raised for a whole year, and they eat my cow. Now I don't have a cow anymore. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get my brothers and my cousins, and I'm going to come kill you. And now that I've killed you, well, then the dead person, his brothers and his uncles and his grandfathers and all of their cousins, they're going to come and kill me and my whole family. Well, then all my extended relatives have to come back, and it goes on and on and on until everyone is dead. And so the idea of an eye for an eye, it says if someone does something wrong, you are limited to equal or less. If someone takes your cow, you don't get to kill their whole family. If someone takes your cow, you only get to get what your cow was worth. If someone punches your tooth, you don't get to cut off his head. It was a limit to the retribution. It was to stop the blood feuds. If you have been wronged, you are limited to a less or equal retribution. You say, okay, you know what? Now that you understand that, that actually makes sense. But Jesus says not to even resist the evil, but rather to give of yourself. And now you may think, you know what? That would be so great if you think about those warring Bedouins in the desert trying to kill all each other. If they would just not resist evil, that would be wonderful. But when it comes to a traffic incident where somebody gets out of his car and spits on me and punches me in the face, hold on. Hold on. I'm an American. You punch me in the face, you better watch out, brother. But Jesus says not even to resist evil. An even more absurd legal requirement when it's saying, if someone compels you to go a mile, go with him twain. Is anyone aware of what that's about exactly? So in researching this and understanding it, turns out the Romans were uh, oppressors, turns out. They ruled the people of Israel with an iron fist, and there was a legal requirement. Roman soldiers, they carried about 60 pounds of gear with them at all times. If you've ever been backpacking, 60 pounds of gear is a ton of weight. It starts to cut into your shoulders even if you have a very expensive backpack. So if you're a Roman soldier and you're walking everywhere, well, it starts to get heavy. And it turns out that if you're a Roman soldier, you are part of the great glory of Rome. Well, Jews, they're, they're basically pack animals. And so the law was, anybody's walking around going to market, well... Tell that Jew, carry your stuff. And he has to carry your stuff for a whole mile. A whole mile. He may be going in the opposite direction. I'm a Roman. You're a Jew. Carry my stuff for a whole mile. And he says, I mean, this is, just imagine. You're doing your thing. And soldiers who are from a completely different country, who are ruling you and taking your money, they have the ability to make you go a whole mile carrying their heavy pack. You're basically an animal in their eyes. And yet Jesus says, when someone oppresses you and treats you like an animal, do it twice. Do it twice. Go two miles. Give of yourself to anyone who asks you. Rather than a limit to the retribution, you are to give to those who ask of you, to anyone. And then Jesus gets to his main point that connects all of these. He takes one more quotation from their teachings. Now, all of these quotations so far, they've been directly from the law of God. And then he's, he's, he's raising the bar from what they thought the law of God meant to what he says, this is what the law of God originally meant. But in, in this one, this is not what the Bible says at all. This is not what Moses said. And he says in verse 43, Ye have heard that hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor. Now that's correct. That's exactly what the book of Deuteronomy says. But here's what they added to it. And hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For ye love them which love you. What reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. So, this is a perversion 
of the law that they had been taught. But this was so entrenched in their thinking that Jesus has to address it. He's saying, these are all things, this is the way you've been taught, and up to this point, it's semi-close. It's just a different interpretation that's classifying out of it. But this one is so completely wrong. The pharisaical interpretation of this commandment that originally was to love your God and to love your neighbor as yourself was rather to love your neighbor. And so if you're only required to love God and love your neighbor, then anyone who isn't your neighbor, well then, if you're loving your neighbor, people within who are insiders, well then, outsiders, you get to hate them because they're outsiders. And in fact, they had brought this all the way down logically to the point to where it was your God-given responsibility. You were obligated to hate outsiders. You were obligated to hate people who were not your neighbor. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy because your enemies were against you and your neighbor. But Jesus is making the radical statement that the first commandment means to love your neighbor and to love your neighbor. It's not just your responsibility not to retaliate to when someone is oppressing you and persecuting. It's saying, all right, just don't retaliate. A limit to your retaliation. Don't strike back. He's saying you have to actually act out in love and love them as you would want to be loved. And everything else that Jesus is saying may seem to be godly, you know, even kind and good teachings for people who want to be spiritual. But when you try to live out the implications of this kind of a command, a responsibility to love your enemies, those who are out for your blood, that's a gut punch. And the people to whom Jesus was preaching, they thought they could merely focus on loving their neighbor. But Jesus is requiring that you have no enemies only neighbors, and that you love your neighbors as God loves you. And if you think this is difficult to understand, Jesus gives a cutting example that would make it abundantly clear. If you want to be the children of your Father in heaven, in other words, if you want to be like God, you will love as he loves. Okay, so how does he love? Well, God makes the sun to shine on the just and on the unjust. Those who are his children and those who are his enemies, he's making the sun to shine the same way on those who love him and those who hate him. And the rain, this is not destructive rain, but rain that brings about green crops and and fresh food. He's saying that blessing of rain, it rains on the just and it rains on the unjust. Those who, who love him and those who hate him, God is giving that same love to both. And if you only love those who love you, he says, isn't that the same as what the heathen do? That they greet their brothers and they are kind to those that love him. You haven't exceeded any kind of righteousness. You're doing the same as the heathen. And in verse 48, he gets to this crux of the whole sermon. And he's saying, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. The greater righteousness that Jesus is calling is not just a legalistic strict code, a limit to your retribution, a restriction on adultery. You're saying, just don't do these things and, and you'll be okay. He's saying, you have to be like the Father if you want to have the greater righteousness of Jesus himself. He's saying, if you want to follow me, if you want to be Jesus' disciple, it means loving your neighbor like God loves you. He's saying the whole purpose of following him is to glorify your Father which is in heaven. And the way in which you glorify the Father is by being like him, being like the Father, loving like he loves. And I remember that biblical sense is of being perfect. It's the idea that you are whole, complete, finished, like God intended for you to be. He intended for us to be like him. And following Jesus will make you like the Father. But the path of following Jesus means loving your enemy like God loves you. And Jesus will later on in the sermon state that this path that he's calling to you to is the straight and narrow path that he calls his disciples to follow him on. And remember, his disciples, those 12 disciples, they were literally following him. Like he was walking around the country of Israel, and Peter, James, and John, and Simon, and all 12, they were literally following Jesus, just walking and going wherever he goes. And for us, if we are to be disciples of Jesus, to follow him, we are to follow in his steps just 2,000 years later, doing and, and living as he would have us to do. There is, however, there's something, if you're going to be a disciple, 
there is a prerequisite. It's repentance and belief in Jesus is the prerequisite to the straight and narrow path of discipleship. Earlier in the book of Matthew, John came preaching in the wilderness and he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And those who were looking for the Messiah, even though they did not understand what that was, they repented. And when Jesus announced that he was the Messiah, those who had repented, they believed that he was the chosen one of God and became his followers. Repentance and belief in Jesus is the prerequisite to the straight and narrow path. Because the greater righteousness that Jesus is calling his disciples to, it is impossible. It's impossible when we look at this to not resist evil in this way, to actually be like God. To be like God is completely impossible except for one thing. Who was standing there telling them to live this way? It was God in the flesh. It was Jesus himself that was standing there calling them to the greater righteousness to which the law could only point. And when he's calling them, he's calling us to follow this path of discipleship. It's only possible through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's through his righteous living, his selfless sacrifice, and his glorious resurrection that he offers us redemption from our sins. If you haven't repented and believed in Jesus Christ, then you cannot live the greater righteousness of Jesus. It is through the grace of Jesus that he takes our sinful soul. When we repent and we turn to him, he takes our soul and he redeems us. And it's through his grace, that work of the Spirit in our lives, that he has changed our eternal status to we are no longer outsiders and enemies, but we are sons, we are children, we are seated in heavenly places. So that's that eternal status that Jesus Christ has changed in our lives. But if you want to actually be changed, if you want to be made fit for the kingdom of God, then you can't just trust in the fact that you have been changed eternally. You have to walk in the path of discipleship. You have to walk in the straight and narrow way. You actually have to choose and to live out in your life what God wants us to do. That, that, that how our e- eternal reality would be lived out in the present. And to do that, you have to actually love your neighbor as God loves you. And through living out his love, that's how God wants to change us into being made like the Father. It's not just something that happens in that moment. That is salvation, but that process of sanctification, of actually making us like the Father, making us into something other than we actually are, that happens by loving your neighbor. And you think, well, that is not a very fun way for God to work all this out. I mean, he did all this amazing plan and he came down to earth and he incarnate. Why couldn't we just be changed in an instant completely everything that we want to be? Because that would be for God to remove our choice entirely. It's through those daily choices of actually living out the life of the disciple, of actually loving your neighbor like God loves you, that he makes us fit for his kingdom. And to go back to our introduction, as we illustrated with the stairs, that that way of of navigating the world by identifying whether something is an obstacle or an opportunity. And as we mentioned, this is a great way to navigate terrain, but it's the opposite of how a follower of Jesus Christ ought to live out God's love to others. Things, stairs, chairs, ladders, mountains, valleys, and roads, those are either obstacles or opportunity, but people are something entirely different. They are never just obstacles. People are always an opportunity to live out our love to them. The second commandment to love your neighbor is, is, and how you view your neighbor determines how you will act to your neighbor. We have, if we're going to be disciples of Christ, we have to stop treating our neighbors as things we can use to accomplish our tasks. Our task is not to use our neighbors. Our task is to love our neighbors as God loves us. So if we think about the connection between each of these examples, the connection is thinking about how you look at your neighbor and how you perceive them. Are they an obstacle? Are they a thing that's in your way? Are they something that annoys you? Are they an opportunity to make yourself greater? Or are they someone who God wants you to love? Because think about it this way. If you're to not, rather, so so if the command of Jesus, the greater righteousness was, okay, here's the statement. Rather than hating your brother, you're to be reconciled to them. So if you look at your brother in Christ as just a thing 
that's in your way, well, then I have every right to hate that thing because it's keeping me from accomplishing my God-given mission that I'm on every day when I get up. I'm on a mission. I've got to accomplish this thing. I've got to write this sermon. I've got to pass out these tracts. I've got to get to work. And that brother is in the way, and I need to demolish him because my goal is to live for God. But if, I, if, I, if my brother in Christ is actually a brother in Christ, he's not just a thing, then we're not just trying to simply stuff down the anger that the empty-headed actions of our brother has caused. We're not just trying to not curse them and pronounce that they're empty-headed, empty-headed. But rather, our responsibility is not just simply to hold our anger when a coworker insults us to our face, when a coworker takes credit for the work that you did, but rather because they are the object of our love and we're to love them as Christ loves us, it's my responsibility to be reconciled with those. And although, although you can't be reconciled with everyone because some will refuse to make it right, it's not just, well, <laughs> I tried and he's a snowflake and so he deserves to suffer. He needs just to get over himself. And you know, sometimes, I really think sometimes, maybe that's good advice to some extent. But am I giving that advice to that person, get over yourself, just burn up, because I've got a problem with him and I'd rather him just get over himself than to confess in any way that I have ever done anything wrong. Yes, some people are snowflakes. Yes, but my responsibility is to tell them what they need to hear so what is going to make them better rather than what is going to make me look better and what is going to justify myself. And this, this idea of being reconciled to your brother and to others around you is so important that Jesus says, if you're in the act of worshiping me, our highest goal on this earth, if you're in the act of singing praises to God, but your brother over here on this side of the auditorium, he's got a problem with you, and maybe you didn't do anything wrong, but he's got a problem with you, and you haven't even tried to make that right, he's saying, stop worshiping me and go make it right to your brother because that's how important it is. Reconciliation with your brother is your responsibility because he's not just a thing for you to use, someone in your way. Rather, he is to be the object of your love. And rather than lusting after strange women, we are to love our families. We're tempted to treat people of the opposite sex as just things for our pleasure. And when a man sinfully looks at a woman, it's the same thought in his heart as adultery. And that sin of adultery, and Solomon talks about this extensively, it's a sin against God, and it's a sin against that woman, it's a sin against that man, and everyone that that man knows, and everyone that that woman knows, that's how awful it is. destroys everyone and everyone around him. The heart of lust is where that begins, and the heart of lust is the enemy to the love of God, because that lustful, lecherous look in the heart of a man, or in the heart of a woman, we're taking what is supposed to be a whole and complete being of God and turning it into stone, something that can please us. That's not how God created us. But because of sin, that's how we look at each other. We degrade each other with that look of lust. We're not caring and loving and thinking of what is best for that person. We're just simply thinking of what is enjoyable. But men, we aren't the only ones to degrade other humans with this heart of lust. We're all tempted to even treat our family as things that are either in our way or useful to us. If your husband isn't making you happy, get a new one. Maybe the husband God gave you. It's not about just making you happy, but about teaching both of you how to love. And if you will love your spouse like God loves you, well then in the end, through a long life of continuing to choose to love each other, God's going to make you perfect. He's going to make you the way he intended by choosing to love even when it's difficult and choosing to live out God's love in circumstances that they're not at all what we wanted. That's how God changes us to people who use other people to people who live out the love of God. And by doing that, you become someone different. God is transforming you from the inside out. It is a work of his Holy Spirit that he is giving us. But you have to actually choose to love that person. And as parents, I'm a new parent. My daughter is a year and a half old. And 
we're tempted to, to treat our kids just as accessories. If my child is behaving properly, well then, look, I look like a good parent. Like, I've got my life together. She's adorable. She's smiling. She's taking care of everyone. I will take her everywhere. This is the perfect accessory to this particular occasion. However, if we're having a meltdown, this is not something that brings pleasure to me as a father. People are thinking, what is he doing at home? Why is he such a terrible father? Why can't he get his act together? Pastor Andrew's kids are well-behaved. Brother Stephen's kids, (laughs) my daughter is behaving herself, she makes me look good. But if I took her pancake away a little too early and she has a meltdown, then she's a problem because she makes me look bad. But if I love her as God has commanded me to love her, then it's an opportunity to lovingly teach her how to behave properly because it's not about me. It's not about how I'm a good father and showing the world that I discipline my child and that she's going to be great and wonderful because I'm great and wonderful. It's about showing her the love of God so she can grow up and live to be the person that God has for her to be. And rather than lying to people, we ought to tell them the truth because they are the people whom God loves. There is a huge difference here between speaking the truth and using language instrumentally. And that's that basic idea. If you think about it this way, if you're having a conversation, you're either trying to get something out of it, get something out of someone to whom you're talking to, or to cause a specific result to occur because you're using language as a tool to accomplish something. I'm saying there's a fire. So everyone's going to run. I'm trying to accomplish that aspect. Or I'm saying to the people under me at work, move faster because the company is losing money. And if you guys don't move faster, the company's going to lose money and then I'm going to lose my job. So move faster! But the way of Jesus is not simply to use my words to accomplish a desired goal. The way of Jesus is to speak the truth. And then whatever's going to happen is whatever is going to happen. Our job is to speak the truth even when it is harmful for us. And the responsibility is, is not just don't tell a lie. Okay, didn't tell a lie today. The responsibility is speak the truth. Do you see the difference between that weight and all of these, re- these requirements? It's not just don't do this. It's do the good. Love your neighbor. And because you love your neighbor, you're not going to lie to them. Because you love your neighbor, you're going to tell them the truth in the way that they need to hear it, in the way that is going to help them grow in Christ or to even to find Christ. And rather than demanding that retribution, where to go the extra mile. Now... I was talking with a pastor recently, he was uh, Pastor Randolph, and even as he talked about that, I felt the same way. He told me that he cannot stand by and see wrongdoing. And he told me different instances where people were doing wrong, and he stepped in to stop that. People these days, they, they, they just see wrongdoing, and they're like, oh, I'm just going to keep, because i got to go to work. But for me, as well, when someone, when there is wrong that's happening, especially if it's to me, and personally, If I don't stop this, if I don't cause justice to come, the very foundations of the world are going to crack and the planets are going to go out of spinning because someone has wronged me and no one's doing anything about it. He cut me off. He put my life in danger and justice demands that I drive him off the road and into a fiery crash. That's what he deserves. Well, that's what my heart would tell me. I'm trying to get on the platform at the subway and I'm trying to get up the steps and some guy shoves me. Well, just he wait because he's going in the tracks when we get on the platform. My sister insulted me at Thanksgiving. I'll wait till Christmas. If your wife gossiped about my wife to the other ladies in the church, oh, excommunication, it's coming. We're Baptists, we don't do that, but you're going to get it. I know some people. And that's what my heart would tell me. That's justice in my opinion. But Jesus says that the way of my kingdom, it's not even to resist evil, but to go the extra mile. And when someone is harming you, actually harming you, not just, I think someone is harming me, because I'm the actual snowflake, 
And whether it's out of malice or out of ignorance, Jesus calls you to continue to extend our love to them. Verse 42, he says, Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Give of what you have to others, even when they're actually taking advantage of you. Even when someone treats you like an animal, go the extra mile, even for those who are purposely oppressing us. And I just want to make this clear. There is a difference between what Jesus is talking about here in terms of personal insults and protecting your family because it's my responsibility to protect my family. And there's a difference between personal insults and the way that I view other people personally and the way that a nation would respond to protect its people. That's a different category. But when it comes to my personal thoughts and my personal responses, it is my job, even when someone's oppressing me, even when someone's taking advantage of me, to continue to extend myself in love to that person. And maybe you've got a particular skill. And maybe you want to use that skill to help other people, to give of yourself. But what happens is another person comes to you for help because you've got this special skill. And they're like, brother so-and-so, I would really just love your help with this. I know you're amazing at it. And so you go to help them. But what ends up happening is they tell you, aren't you so glad that I allowed you to help me with this and that I'm helping you with your business or with this and with that? And it ends up being, they're taking advantage of you. And then they're saying, why aren't you so just incredibly overflowing with gratitude because I took advantage of you because you have this special skill and I demanded that you use it and then I took advantage of you. It's like, how do you respond to that person? Well, turn not away. And what ends up happening, I think, in in our American culture is that because we're scared of that happening, because once you get there, you know that the Christian thing to do is to just keep extending yourself and to keep giving regardless of how that person is treating you, We don't want to give ourselves to anyone because we don't want to be taken advantage of. But Jesus says, give of yourself to everyone that asks and rather not just limiting your retribution to equal or less than, he's saying there should be no limit to your generosity. And rather than hating your enemies, you are to love them like God loves you. In America, we don't have any deadly threats, very many anymore, we're We're safe, we're content, and we're tempted to think of this abstract view of loving our enemies. And we we often think of our enemies as, you know, corrupt politicians who are ruining our livelihoods. Maybe the heads of shadowy corporations and universities and Davos, these shadowy people controlling our lives and pulling the strings, and they're taking our freedoms and our hard-earned money and turning the world into chaos. The people at the top of our corporation, they just cut all of our benefits and they made it even harder for me to provide for my family. Maybe that's happening in your life. They are the ones against whom retribution is just and due. They are the ones against whom our anger is directed often. But, but here's, here's what Jesus is saying in, in all of this. He's not just saying, love your enemies, just think nice thoughts about a dark lord off in the bowels of Mordor somewhere. He's not just saying, think nice thoughts about the people who are hurting you. It's the proximity is what determines your responsibility. So Jesus is telling us to love our neighbor nearby that we think is our enemy. That neighbor next door with the Biden-Harris sign, the one who voted for all the things that are destroying our country and making my job harder. That's the guy we're supposed to love, not just to think wonderful thoughts about the head of the Democratic Committee. The proximity to your neighbor is what determines your responsibility to them. A lot of people I've had to share this earth with, you know, share the earth with everyone that I'm on the earth with right now. And, you know, they're not my enemies, but they're not my friends either. They're just there. They're just annoying. They're the ones that are walking too slow. There's too many of them on the LIE, and it takes way too long to get anywhere. They're the ones who are slowing me down at work, the ones failing to do their job right. They're the ones making me look bad. And you know, I don't hate them. I just wish they weren't there. I just wish that they weren't an obstacle to what I am trying to accomplish. I just wish they were not near me. But being a disciple means loving them like God loves me, praying for them. It's not retribution. It's reversal. 
And I'm not just calling us tonight from God's word, from what Jesus would ask us, to just think wonderful thoughts about all the evil people in the world. Saying, that person in your life, your neighbor, your coworker, your brother, your sister, your mother, your grandfather, those people in your life, you're to love them. The Old Testament law, it, it legally limited the extent of wrongdoing, but it pointed towards the greater righteousness that Jesus Christ came to give us. The Pharisees took it and they turned it into something that, that allowed them to do whatever they wanted and still consider themselves righteousness, but the greater righteousness to which it pointed was that of Christ, of loving your neighbor as yourself. Now love, we could talk about it a long time, but it's a burning fire. And when fire is burning, it devours, it consumes something. And the question is, what is the fire burning? Our corrupted human love, it, it takes and it devours others in service to ourselves. It devours our parents, it devours our friends, our wives, our children. They all must be consumed on the altar of my own self-love. But the way of God is when you live out God's love in your life, that love, it consumes that in you which is unfit for the kingdom of God. When you choose to love as Christ loves, to actually do what he has called us to do, it consumes the selfish, lusting, hating, lying vengeance we want to take on others. And yeah, it'll, cut, it'll pluck out your eye, it'll cut off your arm, and it'll take away your cloak. But God's love, when it's lived out in you, it consumes what is unfit for God's kingdom. And it's going to make you perfect. And rather than consuming everyone that you say you love just to make you happy, rather it's going to consume you. And your life will have been lived for God's kingdom. And you will have been made perfect. Ready to, to sit in heavenly places. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.